it's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days and we are in the last days. describe what it means to become a trance channeler or a medium well that basically means you you are trained to develop the ability supposedly to communicate with departed human beings dead people and this is something that people want it's not like that movie the sixth sense where the kid was scared to death because he was involuntarily seeing dead people and and there's there's many many they're, they're called spiritualist churches. They have other terms they use where, where people actually, that's their service, their church services. People come to these little churches and they sing some hymns. And then they, they, the medium, who's usually the minister of the church, gets up there and she will have like a spirit guide, or he, uh, who will come and be like the master of ceremonies. And the spirit guide will say, okay, you know, dear old Uncle Harry is here and wants to come and talk to his nephew, you know, or 
or grandma, you know, who's he frazzle is here, wants to talk to her grandson. And then the voice changes, and supposedly these different personalities come through, and they talk, and quite often there's different sounding voices and stuff, and, and sometimes they will actually share stuff that supposedly only the person who has departed would know. And um, that's essentially the basis of the spiritualist religion. Mm, thank you. Now, I would say, let me add one thing, not to interrupt, but when you get also into the field of trance channeling, which is kind of the more modern New Age word for what used to be called mediumship, you have this additional layer of uh, chic, shall we say, where, where instead of just having some average dead person who nobody knows who they are, instead you have some mighty awesome being from the past. The most obvious example is this Jane Z. Knight lady out in Yelm, Washington, who has Ramtha, who's this 35,000-year-old Atlantean warrior prince. You know, you aren't just channeling some... That This whole thing was kind of started by Madame Lavatsky, who began, like, channeling ascended masters. And that's kind of an, an octave higher in terms of the pretension of it, that instead of just having regular old dead people, you're channeling these immortal beings that are like semi-gods. Okay. How and why did you become a spiritist medium? Well, early on, both my wife and I, and our, our, once we kind of got together, we, we ran across this really very, very sweet, very intelligent lady uh, who was a professor at University of Northern Iowa, who was the head of a spiritualist church. Her name was Barb Selwa. And we got in touch with her, and she said, well, you know, you guys ought to, you know, come into our organization, partly because we were interested in mediumships, because we knew, like, for example, Sibyl Leake, who was one of the very famous early pioneers of witchcraft, was also a medium. She used to work with the famous ghost hunter Hans Holzer, as a medium, so you thought, oh, that would fit, you know, to be a witch and a medium. And plus, it would give us a tax umbrella. You know, she had a, a 501c3 tax organization that we could thereby accept free will offerings from people. So we took courses from her. There was a whole course of study, and she basically trained the both of us to be mediums. And, and we used it for our own, what we thought at the time was spiritual development, to, to communicate with these high-level beings, and we each had three or four ascended master spirit guides that would give us all this, excuse me, profound spiritual instruction and everything. And, and so it was intended to be a way that we could help ourselves and others that we would give readings for uh, to grow spiritually and to understand their karma and their past lives and all that kind of stuff. Okay, and how long were you a medium for? Probably about 15, 14 years. Okay, and yeah. do people really channel dead people, or is that a ghost, or what? Well, the Bible to me seems pretty clear that, except in most extraordinary circumstances, there's no communication between the living and the dead. Uh, there's a gulf between us. Uh, so what my belief, and I think it's based on scripture, is, is that these entities that are coming through, that are speaking, whether they're supposedly ascended masters or whether they're, um, they're departed loved ones, are actually familiar spirits, what the Bible calls familiar spirits. And people shouldn't be surprised because, I mean, a demon spirit would know everything about a person's intimate life, so they could they could reveal all sorts of information through this medium, and oh oh wow this guy is really communicating with the departed, but actually I believe they're mostly familiar spirits that are doing the communicating. I have I have no reason to believe that any genuine dead person ever communicated with a living. Okay, thank you. So, uh -huh. what would happen during a normal session of channeling? Well, for us, we'd have a bunch of people you know sitting around in chairs in a circle. And we'd, we'd start out by, and amazingly, you start out by singing some very nice old Protestant hymns, you know, like the old Rugged Cross or Walk in the Garden or Amazing Grace or something to kind of raise the vibes, you know. And then the medium would, um, who was presiding would go into trance. And this would involve basically a lot of heavy breathing. And you're basically, we were trained that you would breathe in the spirit, like almost you're doing pranayama, and let him or her fill your your etheric body and so that there's this, this little bit of you left up here like in what would be called the crown chakra 
and the whole rest of your body is inhabited by the medium or by the by the spirit and then you know you would basically stand up and it varies on how to do this but we would stand up and walk from person to person in the circle and the spirit guide would give them a reading you know tell them things uh, usually there wasn't a question and answer type of exchange. It was just like, you know, I feel that the Spirit is telling me to say to you, blah, blah, blah. And then you give them some kind of message which may or may not have any way of being checked. You know, like if you tell someone, well, you know, 5,000 years ago you were a Sumerian princess. I mean, how are you going to know that? You know, there's no way to really check that scientifically. Um, but but that was kind of what happened. And... Um, and uh, then, if there was healing needed, then the person might, the person who's channeling this, um, this spirit might even lay hands on someone and pray for them to be healed. Um, it, <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to go there. It's just some interesting stories about healings in these spiritualist circles that show that they don't work very well. Okay, just tell one. Well, okay. Uh, one time, I was in a circle. I was, I was just in training, and. Um, the lady beside me had a uh, uterine infection, and I prayed for her to be healed, and I got a uterine infection, which is a really good <laughs> trick when you don't have a uterus. But I went to the doctor, and he said, well, I don't believe this, but you, you're, you're testing in your blood for you know the kind of infection that women usually get in their uterus, and I, I've never heard of a man getting it. Wow. So it was like kind of an em empathetic healing thing that went wacko. How is a dead person meant to heal someone? Well, these aren't just, you got to realize, these ascended masters right. aren't just mm -hmm. dead people. They're mighty demigod, archangelic, supposed type beings, which is, you know, not really true, but that's the belief. See, we had a hierarchy. We, there were, there were what were called regular old plain vanilla dead people. Then there were spirit guides. And then you had what was called a life guide. And he was the one special spirit guide who stayed with you from the moment you were born till the moment you died, and he was more advanced. The other guides, <coughs> excuse me, might come and go, but your spirit guide would stay with you all through your life, and mine was supposedly a 15th century Franciscan monk named Ambrosius. Then, over your life guide, we were taught there were what were called doctors of divinity. And that has nothing to do with a theological degree. It's uh, like a very powerful super, super guide who's so awesome that they hardly ever even come into your body and take you over, which is a very good thing. Because, for example, one night I had one come in and take me over and I got about half of this head of white hair in one night just from this guide being it. Wow. Because they just drain all the life force out of you. And I was, I was told later by a different spirit guide that just because this mighty great doctor of divinity was in me for, say, 15 or 20 minutes, he sucked five years off my lifespan. Wow. Which I do not receive now that I am a Christian. But at the time, you know, I mean, that, that was, an, it was a very, scared my wife very badly because right. it was a very scary time. Did you decide to stop it because of it being That scary? never happened again. Right. I actually, I swelled up like a tick and ripped out of the robes I was wearing. It was kind of like that old TV series, The Incredible Hulk, you know, where the guy would wow. rip out of his clothes. and She didn't know what was going on because she was sitting there kind of, you know, helping me through this and all of us. This is not something they prepare you for in medium school. <laughs> but uh, we got through it. Uh, but she thought I was going to die there for a while. It was, it was pretty frightening, I'm sure. It was frightening for me, too, because there's enough of you conscious within these experiences, even though you're kind of in a dream state, that I knew that I, my heart was going, blah, 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 you know, it was like 180 beats a minute, and, you know, it was like I was having a seizure or something. But it was just this mighty doctor of divinity. And you'd think if they were that powerful and that mighty, they'd know enough then to come into a human body and do that to someone, wouldn't you? Mm. But again, that just illustrates that these are actually demons that don't really know what they're doing. I mean, a demon is as dumb as a box of rocks. You know, they don't know what they're doing, and, you know, they only do what their higher-ups tell them to do. What actually is a demon? Well, that's a controversial question, but uh, a demon is a low-level spiritual entity that's lower on the spiritual food chain than a human being. Um, some people believe, well, there's an erroneous belief that they're fallen angels. They're not. Fallen angels are a much higher order of spiritual life. Uh, 
the theory I fall into in terms of, of a theory for what demons are is that back in Genesis 6, the um, angels came down and had, fallen angels came down and had relations with human women. And they produced offspring that were called in the Nephilim, the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And uh, when those beings were drowned in the flood, because they were half angelic, their spirits survived as demons. And I think that's where the demons come from. There's also the theory that they were born from the demon goddess Lilith, who was supposedly the first wife of Adam. That's the rabbinical theory on it, but I don't necessarily buy that. And there's there's other theories as well. But okay. Thank you. Who mm-hmm. did you channel? Well, I got them all. I mean, I did everything. Of course, I had my life guide. And I had about four or five guides. One was an African witch doctor. One was a Native American. We were very politically correct in those days, you know. Uh, and uh, but, but those are my regulars. Um, beyond that, oh, I would have rare appearances by Jesus, quote-unquote. Uh, and um, at one time, I channeled back when I was kind of drawing into the dark side of things in a deeper way. I had Nero come into me. I had Aleister Crowley make frequent appearances, complete with British accent. I had uh, even Adolf Hitler come into me a few times and give me advice about how I need to exterminate all the Jews. Wow. So, I, I mean, I went the gamut from the supposedly very nice to the supposedly very nasty. But, of course, all these were demons. I mean, the, the Jesus who came to me was not the real Jesus. How did you know who, if he was Jesus or not? Well, at the time, we just, you know, I see, I, the, the principle is you get into kind of a trust-working bond relationship with your life guide. Ah. And so, and supposedly he's a high enough evolved being that if he, that he can keep away anybody nasty. But even so, whenever a spirit comes to either speak or to even come into you, you're supposed to say, and I already talked about this, do you stand in the light? Well, yes, of course I stand in the light. I'm a Luciferian, whatever, you know. But, you know, so that's how you're supposedly to, to kind of screen these people. But in theory, also the spirit, the life guide, I'm sorry, would, would screen them. And then he would say, oh, here's Jesus, you know, the master Jesus, and he wants to speak to you. And then in come, would come Jesus, and away we'd go. Okay, I had the understanding that one problem with learning from spirit guides and that is they actually haven't got as much life experience as we do. So like, if you've got a 15th century monk, can he tell you how to live in the 20th century? Well, yeah, except of course the theory is, I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with you in practice, but in theory they would say, well, these beings are up and they have access to all the Akashic records, and oh. they can see the past, the present, and the future. But you know what the funny thing is? Because often, my wife and I would do readings almost every day, just privately between the two of us, and, and we'd ask important questions, you know, like the life decisions we were making, whatever. And, you know, it was like trying to do a Yi Jing reading. Have you ever used the Yi Jing, you know, the Chinese, or you get these obscure fortune cookie answers, you know, like you're trying to say, okay, should I take this job in, in West Dallas, Wisconsin? And, you know, the superior man walks across the river and gathers rice beans, you know, or something. That's Half the time, that's what these, these guys would just give us, these really obscure kind of strange answers. They, and I think partly it was because the demons didn't know the future. You know, only Yahweh knows the future. Right. He only knows the end from the beginning. And so we get all this kind of flummery and amphigury and whatever, and, and you come out at the end of it, and we kind of be scratching our heads like, okay, what did that really mean? You know, that's why, if you, even though I'm kind of digressing here, but you read a lot of the, the works of these supposed great trans channelers. Like if you read Blavatsky's writings or even like, you know, Elizabeth Clare Prophet or Jay-Z Knight or some of these other people... It's like it's like reading sort of intellectual pudding, you know. You can't. It's like trying to nail jello to the wall to get a concept out of their writing because it's all and it's intended. I think it's intended to be like that. I think it's like the intellectual version of like kind of a, a koan where your mind just sort of freaks out because you can't you can't handle it, all of this vague nonsense. 
Okay. Um, ascended Masters are becoming very popular these days. What would you have to people who love, you know, talking to John the Baptist and Jesus and all this? Well, I would just tell them there, there's, a, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 8 in the, in the Old Testament where it says, you know, why do you listen to mediums that peep and mutter? to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now what that tells us, what does that mean? The law is, of course, the Torah, the Old Testament. The testimony is the testimony of Yeshua, Jesus Christ. So if, if these beings are coming through, you've got to measure what they say according to the scriptures. Because the rule is, prior revelation judges later revelation. Because in Malachi 3.6, Yahweh God says, I am Yahweh, I change not. So Yahweh isn't going to say something, you know, 5,000 years ago and then say something opposite in the 20th or 21st century. So what I tell anybody who's supposedly communicating with an ascended master, whether it's Jesus or Moses or, you know, whoever, is does what they say agree with the Bible? Because if it doesn't, Flush it. It's that simple. That's the, that's the conclusion we came to because the Bible is an objective source of truth upon which you can measure things. And uh, because otherwise you're adrift in total subjectivity. You have no way of knowing, like if, if, uh, if someone comes to you and says, oh well, there's really four gods. There's Mo, Larry, Curly, and Curly Joe. And they're the, the supreme deity. They're the quaternity of the universe. And then you go back to, you know, Deuteronomy 6.4, and it says, Hero Israel, Yahweh or Elohim is one. And so you know that the guy who says there's four gods is out to lunch. It's that simple. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Did you ever find out who the being you channeled who said he was Jesus, did you ever find out who he really was? I really, no, I didn't. I, I'm assuming he was some very cunning, medium-level demon who was you know, able to, to do a creditable, you know, Im imitation of what, what an average person would think Jesus would be like. Okay. Yeah. From your own experience, did channeling ever help anyone in the long run? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. I think one time I can think of, and this is in, in like, you know, 15 years of doing this. I mean, because you give all of this, this vague, lofty metaphysical advice, but... Um, I think one time I had a guy and we did a reading for him we warned him be very careful because you're going to fall and slip on ice and five days later he fell and slipped on ice and nearly broke his leg but of course okay. it didn't really help him no, because right. he still fell right. you know, but everybody, oh wow that was like a, a prophetic prediction oh, you know? and they were just so excited about that that doubled the attendance at our little weekly seance meeting so, but no it really because most of the time, is just like with us, if someone come to us with a concrete question, like the, the, the answers that would be given would be so vague as to be basically, you know, because we were taught in our mediumship training that it was not our place as mediums to give people answers. It was our place to give them insights that would elicit the answers from within themselves. Which is, of course, a very safe way of avoiding getting sued later. <laughs> you know, because if you if you tell someone, oh yes, you know, you should divorce your wife and run off with the you know the lady who works in the bank with you, you know, you could end up getting you know drawn into a very nasty divorce. <laughs> so you know, but that's how we were trained. Okay, did channeling ever hurt anyone? Well, I think it hurt us because basically uh, a lot of the <laughs> spiritual advice that came through me ended up leading us in some very dangerous directions, even, even to the point of, say, vampirism. Okay. You know, and I, I'm sure, you know, the same thing is true of other people who, who sought advice from us because uh, a lot of times we would be encouraged and the people with us would be encouraged to partake in some very, very dangerous, very sinful activities. You know, like, for example, when I was into vampirism, uh, several of the women in the coven were, were being given transfers and they would say, oh, it will be very excellent for your spiritual evolution if you allow Bill to bite you in the neck and drink your very own blood. You know, and that's not very good advice. This was in the dawning days of AIDS. 
And while I don't think I, you know, I had AIDS or gave anybody AIDS, I mean, it was it was just not a very good idea, you know. And yet we were doing it. So, uh, and and we advised people sometimes the guides, you know, the spirit guides advised people to take dangerous hallucinogenic drugs. They advised them to, you know, do other things that weren't necessarily very smart. And of course, they often advised them to do very dangerous occult rituals. Okay. Well, they were fairly clear. That was one time then they were really clear instructions, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, thank you. So, but they never gave clear instructions to do something good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying, I can't think of an example. I mean, you've got to realize this is like 25 right, years so. ago, but nothing comes to mind, but I'm sure they did. Yeah, because again, see, both my wife and I, we were, without wanting to sound disingenuous, we were pretty good-hearted people. We thought we were serving, you know, the true and living God. We thought we were helping people. And so we would never knowingly give someone bad advice. Or would we allow, because we were always taught, you know, because this lady who trained us, this Barb Sella trained us in that one passage in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 14, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And so we were always taught that because we had this little, this little place up in the top of our head where we could control the guides that if they were saying something we didn't think was right, we could stop them. So Good. So what comment would you give to people who channel or go to channelers? Well, I would say it's a very, very dangerous thing uh, because you don't know who you're trafficking with. You have no idea. The Bible says clearly on numerous occasions you're not supposed to speak to the dead. You're not supposed to go to mediums or soothsayers or whatever term you want to use. Of course, the word channeler is not in the Bible because that's that's a New Age term. But it, it's it's dangerous. Because, and if you are a medium or a channeler, you are basically inviting into your body entities that you have no idea really what they are. You don't really know who these people are. Just saying, do you stand in a light? That's about as effective as a screen door on a submarine. Okay, thank you. So mm -hmm. what help did you find your spirit guides were for you in the long run? I'm sorry, what? what? Your, your spirit guides. Yeah. What help were they? Yeah, were they any help at all? About as much help as a screen door. Right, okay. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I'm sure every now and then, I mean, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. Every now and then, they would probably give good advice. But, you know, by and large, as I look back, I, I don't, I think it was more or less about, you know, 75% nonsense and 25% good advice. Okay. It says in your book that your spirit guides encouraged you gently to get involved in the Church of Satan. So did they actually speak to you in those words? Oh, yeah. Well, see, you hear what happens is you hear words in your mind. It's not like there's this audible, although there are mediums that actually they, they have what they call spirit trumpets where this is, this is kind of old-fashioned stuff. I don't think this is still going on much anymore, but where the medium would actually have a, a, like a thing that looked like a megaphone that would float around the seance room, and this disembodied voice would speak through this trumpet and say things. That was called being a trumpet medium. Those were very highly prized. And um, sometimes there would be mediums that would literally sit there, and this is creepy to see, I've seen this, where they would sit there like this, with their mouth open, Nothing, nothing moving in the mouth, but a voice coming out. Wow! But you're not, you're not seeing lips move or tongues move. <gasps> and and this deep voice or whatever would come out and then say something. But in our case, almost always, that only happens usually with these really high level guides that like give you seizures and stuff. Uh, usually, I would hear a voice in my head, and it would be very clearly the voice, and it would like resonate down into my voice box and everything, and it wouldn't come out with it with, with an accent. And, you know, like the African witch doctor, he sounded like an African witch doctor, and the monk from England sounded like a monk from England. Actually, he was from Edinburgh, so he had a faint Scottish accent. But <laughs> anyhow, yeah, and, and, I, and I, would, I would hear these voices, and in that case, um, I forget exactly what you asked, the, did they tell me to do? Join the Church of Satan. Yeah, I was Because most I was people don't think advice. spirit guides would say that kind oh, of no. thing. They would tell me, well, I, I would get the initial nudge in this case, like from the uh, fellow that ran the occult bookstore there in uh, Milwaukee at that time. But, you know, I would then, we'd go to the guy, and go, well, is this okay? You know, and they'd, well, you have to realize that Anton LaVey is an ascended master, come back, you know, he's a bodhisattva or something, you know. And, and I mean, well, because the guy said, he says, even, because again, you see, the funny thing to say is the Church of Satan really isn't that bad. 
I mean, it's bad, but compared to hardcore Satanism, it's we used to call it comic opera Satanism. It's not really, you know, serious Satanism. They don't even believe in the devil in the Church of Satan. So joining the Church of Satan was not as huge a metaphysical step as you might think. I see. Okay, well, a lot of people also like talking to angels and getting advice from them. What do you think, of, if that's a good idea? Well, I really don't see the point in talking to the middleman when he can talk to the boss. And I mean, all, are all angels good is kind well, of where my question is yeah, leading. Well, yeah, I mean, no, all angels aren't good. Right. The problem is there are fallen angels. And we are warned in the Bible against cultivating a worshipping of angels or an over... I think a lot of this stuff is sort of unhealthy that's going on today, like Doreen Virtue or whatever her name is, and some of these other people that are telling people, oh, you've got to talk to your angels, and they have angel cards and angel this and angel that. And we're warned against that kind of thing because angels don't exist to glorify themselves, good angels. Good angels will only direct your worship and your questions and everything else to the Almighty. Only an evil angel will encourage that sort of devotion and worship or whatever, because worship only belongs to the almighty, you know, Yahweh in heaven. It doesn't belong to some, you know, dippy little angel. It's, that's, I mean, angels are not, they're awesome beings, but compared to, to the almighty, they're navel-lived. So when we have the right as believers to, to have the rock, the Holy Spirit live within our hearts, and we can talk to him, why mess around with some dumb angel? You know, it's like, you know, why go to middle-level management and you can go to the top? Sure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What is a Freemason? Uh, that was a radical change of subject. A Freemason <laughs> is a member of probably the world's oldest organized secret society. Uh, ancient accepted Freemason, ancient free and accepted Masons. Uh, and um, they've been around basically in an organized way since the early uh, 1700s. Um, and nowadays there's, there's I think about two and a half million Masons in America. They're kind of a dying breed, thankfully. Uh, right now the average age of a Mason in this country is 70. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not getting a lot of new members. And of course, they're dying off as things happen. So uh, it's it's really dwindling in membership. I don't know which is going down faster: the membership of the Catholic priesthood or the membership of the Freemasons. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> Masonry is they call themselves they call they say Freemasonry is a system of allegory. Wait, a system of morality veiled in allegory. That's their definition, mm. which is typically vague and nebulous. Mm. Uh, what it is, it's a, basically a system of three degrees that's based on the old stonemasons guild. Kind of like, you know, even today we have like trade guilds, like for carpenters, stonemasons, plumbers, whatever. Well, that's what the Freemasons were originally. They were, they were the medieval stonemasons guild that worked and built the cathedrals. But nowadays, almost no Freemasons are actually stonemasons. I've only known one that was actually a real stonemason. Uh, most of them are just businessmen or whatever, you know, and they're just in the lodge for whatever reason. Okay, why did you become a Freemason? Well, because the Grand Master Druid of North America told me to. Secondarily, because my spirit guides told me to. Okay, which spirit guide? You're the monk from... Yes, okay. yes, yes. And we were, see, I should elaborate slightly on that. We were, especially by this, this Grand Master Druid, uh, he himself was a 33rd degree Mason. And he said that a lot of really good occult information could be found within the Masonic Lodge. And that it was a place where a lot of occult adepts did gather, sometimes clandestinely, under the cover of being other things, you know, but they would, they would actually be high-level occultists who were also Masons. And if you look at a list of most of the prominent occultists of the 20th century, you'll find that almost all of them were Freemasons. How did you get to meet that druid? Well, we were we were starting up as witches, my wife and I. That I think at that time we weren't married; we were just good friends. And uh, and uh, the guy, the same fellow who had this occult bookstore in Milwaukee, he arranged. He heard about this grandmaster druid that he had finally, because this this omen had appeared in the heavens, this this prodigy of stars and congealed. In the heavens in 1971, 
he was told that, that, the, uh, that the age of Aquarius was then dawning. And so supposedly, this is a story, supposedly it was time for him to come down out of the hills of Arkansas where he and his family had been practicing druidry in this country for a couple hundred years as Scottish immigrants to come down out of the hills and start teaching the science of druidism to the masses. So he apparently, I suppose what he did is he contacted various occult bookstore owners in large cities throughout the country and made arrangements to come and speak. And this guy who was a friend of ours, he invited us up from, we were living at that time in Dubuque, to come up and hear this guy speak. And he was extremely impressive. Uh, and uh, in his own way, very powerful. But, um, so that that's how the relationship, and eventually he ended up somehow or other convincing us we needed to go down to Arkansas up in the mountains and study personally with him for like three or four months and we did so and he became high priest in the Druids. So that's, that's and it was during the course, he didn't really tell everybody that he met, oh you gotta be Freemasons, but he told the people who were in the high priesthood of his, of his organization that that would be a good thing to do. Okay, and how long were you a Mason for? Nine years. And how high up did you go? Well, I went through the typical Blue Lodge degrees, went through York Rite all the way up to the Knights Templar Commandery, went through the Scottish Rite all the way up to 32nd degree, uh, and at that time, then I was considered worthy to get into what is called esoteric Freemasonry, which most, most American Masons don't even know exists. And in that organization, uh, I was admitted into the Rite of Memphis Mitzrium, and I went up to a 90th degree which a lot of Masons, if they even hear that, they will, you know, their false teeth will fall out of their heads. But uh, there are actually at least 97 degrees in, in the higher level esoteric rites. From your experience. From I've, my experience. I've actually heard there's 360 degrees with Satan at the top. Do you yeah, know if that's true or not? I have no idea if that's true or not. I have heard that too. But for my information, I, only got, I can only speak to that there's 90. Right. Were you surprised when you found that there were more than 33 degrees? No, not really. See, here, you've got, here's how this works. When I went through the Masonic rituals, I had the spirit guides in my ear whispering things, telling me to do things, telling me to answer certain things in certain ways. Because I did that, I was identified by the leadership of the Grand Lodge of the state of Wisconsin that I was someone a little bit extraordinary. And the spirit guides kept prompting me with these things. And I knew before I was even asked that there was a right of Memphis misery on because the spirit guides told me so. Wow. And see, that's one of the ways in, in which I ultimately got contacted by the Illuminati, is because the spirit guides had given me certain key things to say, key things to do, uh, even gestures to make, stuff like that, that would identify me as being someone who was worthy of more light. Because see, that's what they promise in all the Masonic degrees. They say, you know, you get light. You get further light. You get more light. And of course, where does this light come from? Well, if you read the writings of the Masonic leaders, that comes from Lucifer. And how many Masons know that? Maybe one in a thousand. Wow. The rest are just like cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. They're there to be spiritually drained, spiritually vampirized, financially drained, because masonry sucks a lot of money out of you. Uh, but most of them don't have a clue, unless they bother to toddle upstairs and read the books that are in their own Masonic libraries, like I did. Right. For example, Manley P. Hall, who is one of the most honored masons of the 20th century, he wrote a book... Um, whose name totally escapes me right now. But um, in this book, uh, I'm sorry, I can't really get the name, but he made this remark. He said, when the Master Mason arrives to the point that he is a warrior on the block, the seething energies of Lucifer are his to command. Lost Keys of Freemasonry, sorry, that's the name of it. Very good. Yes, I had a senior moment there. <laughs> So what does one have to do to become a mason for all the different, for the first bunch of levels? Well, it's like the bumper sticker says, to be one, ask one. Supposedly masons are not allowed to recruit, although they're so desperate now they are. But you just have to, like in my case, I didn't know a mason. 
period. I'd been given this advice by this guy. We moved back to Milwaukee, and having been raised Catholic, and in those days Catholics had nothing to do with Masons, I didn't know what to do. And it happened that this young man joined our coven, and his dad was the junior warden of a lodge. And so I asked him, well, can you arrange for me to, you know, be applied for membership? They come and they interview you. Basically, they ask you some questions. The key thing is they ask you if you believe in God, because you can't be an atheist. The, the criteria for being a Mason are you cannot be an atheist, a madman, a fool, a young man under 18, an old man in his dotage, or a woman. So, those are the rules. Okay, so what do they do for the first... What, are there any rituals they do? <laughs> There are rituals upon rituals upon rituals. I mean, you want to talk about high church, uh, everything has a ritual. And the initiation rituals are basically, you're blindfolded and, and it's much too long to go into. We, we have a whole video that, that gives away all the secrets right? if people okay. want them, you know, like behind masonry. But um, basically, you're given, you're, you're given, taken through kind of what is an ancient mystery rite, excuse me, a ceremonial ordeal in each degree, because you're led around blindfolded, you're challenged, you're made to answer certain questions. Then the key part of each degree, and this is true of all the Masonic degrees, is you take an oath. You kneel at the altar upon a holy Bible, and you take this blood-curdling oath, never to reveal the secrets. And just to give you an example, in the third degree, the oath is that if you reveal the secrets of the Master Mason degree, that you're body will be severed in twain, your bowels taken from the body and burnt to ashes, the ashes scattered to the four winds of heaven, that no more remembrance would be had of you of so vile a wretch as to have violated his master mason degree. And you swear that oath on the Bible, so help me God. And do, are you told before you go in there what you're going to have to swear? No. And how did you feel when they told you that that's what you have to say? Well, see, I'd already gone through a witch initiation, which is about 80% similar to a mason initiation. Ah. I was already a third-degree witch when I became a mason. And I'd had a lot of this stuff done, you know, like they challenge you with a sharp instrument on your naked breast, they, they blindfold you, they have a cable tone on your neck. And I'd had to kneel at the sacred altar of witchcraft and swear that oath. Not, not, in fact, here's the funny thing. The Masonic oaths are more horrible by a country mile than are the witch oaths. Isn't that interesting? Mm. But it was a little creepy at the time. I said, because the first time you do this, you're blindfolded. You have no idea of where you're at. Mm. You're in a room full of a bunch of strange dudes. You're For all you know, they could be ready to cut your throat or, or you know, throw you on the floor and, and sodomize you or who knows what. And they're telling you all this stuff, and then they give you this blood-curdling oath and then they say, um, my brother, in your current situation, having you know, taken this oath, what do you most desire? And the guy who's guarding you and kind of leading you around because you're blindfolded, he whispers in the ear, light. And so you say light. And then the worshipful master says, my brethren, assist me to reveal the light of masonry to our new brother. And then he recites Genesis 1, verse 1. God said, let there be light. And everybody claps, and they whip the blindfold off. And he sees before him, revealed by the light of three burning tapers, the Holy Bible with the square encompasses on it. Okay. What would happen if someone changed their mind and decided not to say light, said, I want to go home now? Well... I don't really know. I mean, I don't think they'd kill you. I, I, they might just lead you out of the lodge room at that point mm -hmm. because you wouldn't have really seen any of the secrets. Right. You would just know that they had some kind of creepy oath. But I've never heard of that. I, I would speculate, and that's all it would be, that they would probably just lead you out of the room and give you your clothes back because you're basically dressed in these weird blue jammies. Uh, and send you home and hopefully give you your jewelry back. Okay. Because you're not allowed to have any jewelry on when you go through a Masonic initiation. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that all Masonic temples have no windows. Is, is there any comment you could make about that? Well, they that? may have windows, but they're either frosted over or covered with curtains. Like the windows, our lodge had windows in Milwaukee. Uh -huh. But you can't see it, and that's because, again, it's secret. Right. And they don't want anybody peeking in the windows. In fact, the word eavesdropper, which is common language in, 
English is actually a Masonic term because there was at one time a fellow who learned the secrets of masonry hung from the eaves of the roof of the lodge building and tried to look in the window and he fell and hurt himself. Oh. And that's where the term eavesdropper originated. Wow. You'd be amazed how many Masonic terms are actually in our vocabulary without us knowing it. Um, okay, thank you. You say that to advance into serious Satanism beyond the church of Satan level, it would be necessary to complete two apparently paradoxical tasks. The first was to join the Order of Freemasons and become a Master Mason. And the other was to receive holy orders and become a Catholic priest. So how many Master Masons know that there are Satanists among them? I'd say probably the same figure I quoted earlier, one in a thousand. Right. I knew, just in Milwaukee, I knew at least five or six Masons that were involved in either witchcraft or Satanism. And um, one of them was a deeply, he was a worshipable master. And he never, and see, this is one thing people ask you, well, they say, in the higher degrees, is that where you get this stuff? No. This guy had never gotten past Master Mason, but he had worked his way through the chairs, as they say, and become even a worshipful master, which is like the head of the lodge, and was a very serious scholar of Manly P. Hall, um, who was, again, when he died in, I think he died in 1984, he was eulogized as the greatest Masonic philosopher of the 20th century. And this guy hated God. He hated religion with a passion. And I remember at one point, I, one year I went to the Grand Lodge meeting, because I was a lodge officer, and on the floor was a debate as to whether or not we should remove the oaths because they were offensive to some Christians. And this guy got up and just railed on the Christian church. And just went on and on. We sure don't let these bleepity bleep Christians tell us how to run. I mean, this is older than Christianity. This is blah blah. And he was just going on. And this this guy. I mean, this guy was a very high level esotericist, and yet he also had an obvious hatred for Christianity. So, I don't know. Thank you. Since since Catholics are strictly forbidden to be Masons, why were you being asked to do two opposite things? Well, first of all. This whole thing about, you know, there's, in Illuminism, there's this idea of creating a false dichotomy. What people don't realize is that the Catholic Church helped start the Masons. And that, for example, the Scottish Rite, most of the degrees in the Scottish Rite were written by Jesuits. So even though there is this apparent antipathy between the Masons and the Catholics, to the point that up until John Paul II's reign, if you became a Mason and you were Roman Catholic, you were de facto excommunicated, just like that. Um, but actually it's all a sham, because most of the high level of um, people in the Vatican are all Freemasons, and many of the people that are Freemasons are Catholics. Why do they have the sham? What, what do they get out of that? Well, originally, you see, it's like the old Hegelian idea, which he actually got from the Illuminati, of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You have two opposing things, and they fight, and they come together, and they create a, and in this case, the idea would be to create a one-world religion out of these two opposites. The two things come together, and they merge. And that's actually happening right now before our very eyes. Because, for example, I don't know this, but I have serious reason to believe that the new pope is, in fact, a Freemason. The old pope who just died was a Freemason. The pope before him was a Freemason. How do you the know The pope that? before him was, a, was not only a Freemason, but a Rosicrucian. How do you, how do you know that? Well, the Angelo Roncalli, who was John Twenty-Third, he was a member of a very high-level Rosicrucian Masonic order. There are records to that effect, and that's been documented in a book called The Broken Cross. I forget the author, but you can look it up on the internet, I'm sure. Um, Paul VI created, uh, pardon me, he, he, um, he enlarged the College of Cardinals. And just by coincidence, almost all the cardinals, he took archbishops and made them cardinals. That's what the Pope does. Almost every one of those cardinals, those new cardinals, were Freemasons. Now, by inference, we can assume that he was probably a Freemason, but that's only circumstantial. When John Paul II was shot, he gave the Grand Masonic hailing sign of distress. Oh, okay. Which is what Masons do when they're in dire straits. Also, 
John Paul II is the the pope who issued the bull, which is what like a papal decree, it's called a papal bull, that that basically removed the ban on Freemasonry. Oh, okay. Which is also somewhat telling. So, to answer your question, the the antipathy there is more imaginary than real. Thank you. Mm-hmm. What are some vows that Masons take that might later protect a murderer or a, a person, a treason, treason person in the well court? In the Blue Lodge, you swear an oath that you will keep the secrets of a brother master Mason inviolate, murder and treason accepted, meaning you, you can turn them in if they're a murderer or a traitor. However, if you go up the York Rite, which is supposedly the Christian ha, 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 branch of Freemasonry, and you get to the Royal Arch degree, there you swear an oath which says, I will keep the secrets of a Royal Arch companion, murder and, excuse me, murder and treason not accepted. So if you know that your brother, you know, Royal Arch Mason, is a murderer or a traitor, you have to keep that secret. And both of those degrees also have a similar clause which says that if I know that a brother Master Mason is in danger, I am under obligation to warn him of approaching danger. So if you're a police officer, if you're a judge, if you're a officer of the court, and you find out that a warrant is going to be served on a brother Mason, you're under a blood oath obligation to go and warn that guy so he can skip town. It's just so terrible. Mm-hmm. Scary for our country. Especially when you think of how many judges are Freemasons. Because it used to be virtually all lawyers were Masons. Now there's more and more, of course, women lawyers, so that number is diminishing. But you can still assume a sizable majority of, of people on the bench or that are attorneys are probably Freemasons. Thank you. What's the big secret of Masonry? Well, in an exoteric sense, the big secret of Masonry is there is no secret. It's basically a bunch of handshakes. And those handshakes exist to guard the master's word. Okay? Um, And the master's word, you discover in third degree, was lost. Oops, there's no master's word. And so therefore, and this is too lengthy to explain, but uh, in the ritual drama that goes as part of third degree, we learn that that Hiram Biff, who was one of three grand masters, was murdered, and he took to his grave with him one third of the master's word, and so the master's word is forever lost. And so when they raised Hiram from the grave by the strong grip of the lion's paw and brought him back to life, supposedly, the first words that were spoken as this happened, were to be the new master's word. Are you ready for what that word is? Yep. Mahabon. Right. Now, Mahabon in Hebrew means what the builder. Because he was an architect. Now, isn't that this just totally awesome, earth-shattering secret? What? The builder? <laughs> but of course, most Masons don't even know what those words mean. But those words are so sacred, you can only communicate them to a brother master Mason on the five points of fellowship in the ear of the other Mason in low breath so that no one else might hear them. Okay, That's very strange. However, what you've got to realize is that all of this is flummery and that the esoteric secret is that the master's word is in fact the lost member of Osiris. And as some of your listeners may know, in the ancient mystery religions, Osiris was a god in Egypt who was the god of fertility. And his evil brother, Set, killed him and cut up his body into dozens of pieces and hid them all over Egypt. And Isis, the goddess who was both Osiris' mother and his wife, looked all over to find the pieces. Just like they searched all over in the master in the uh, master mason degree to find the lost body of, of Hiram, and she found all of the pieces except one, and that's the male member. And so she put him back together, but because he was missing his most <laughs> his naughty bit, uh, 
She couldn't bring him back to life, so she had to plunk him down in the underworld, and he became the god of the underworld. Okay, now, um, the metaphor is, is that the lost word is actually sexual potency of the mason. So it all boils down to sex. <laughs> Yet most masons don't even know this. They don't understand, for example, um, the monument that was supposedly erected at the tomb of Hiram Abiff was a broken column with a beautiful maiden weeping over it, and behind her is Father Time plaiting her hair. Now think of that. What's the broken column? It's a phallic symbol. The weeping maiden is Isis, and Father Time is Kronos, the Saturn Titan and Saturn who is Saturn in Egyptian mythology? He's Set, the, the god that murdered Osiris. It's all right there. That's why when a master mason is in dire, dire trouble, like the Pope was, he will cry out, O oh Lord my God, is there no help for the widow's son? Because Hiram was the widow's son. Well, Isis is the widow. See, it all goes back to ancient Egyptian mythology. Wow. So the actual secret is that masonry is a sex cult. Wow. And that's why they wear their apron over their holy of holies. Just like there's a veil in the Temple of Solomon that covers the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Well, this is the holy of holies of the mason. That's why Masonic monuments are obelisks. Like Washington's monument, the largest obelisk in the world. He was a Freemason. It's a giant phallic symbol. It's all there for everyone to see. That is, the, that is what the Masons mean by resurrection. Wow. When they, when you, if you go to a Masonic funeral, they talk about the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. That's not, they don't, when they say that word, they don't mean what all the nice you know, Christian people sitting in their chairs think they mean. They're talking about the fact that the phallus dies and then rises again. Wow, thank you. Mm -hmm. What are some of the problems with Freemasonry? <laughs> well, I think some of it would be rather obvious. But, right. Uh, well, basically, it's, it's its own religion. It's a religion which does not honor Yeshua, Jesus Christ. And it is a religion that demands people that they do things that are contrary to the commandments of God. And let me explain that. The oaths that I've already mentioned that you have to take, even as an entered apprentice, the lowest degree are blood-curdling. You swear that you will have your throat cut from ear to ear and your tongue torn off by the roots to bear, be buried in the sands of the sea. And uh, obviously that's going to involve a certain amount of death, you know. And the problem is, is that first of all, you're swearing that oath on a Bible in the name of God. Now here's the deal. Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5, uh, 34 to 37, that we're not supposed to swear oaths. And that is also repeated by James in chapter 5, verse 12. That be, he says, above all things, my brethren, swear no oaths. So just right there, if you're a Christian and you're a Mason, you've just broken one of the commandments of your Lord and Savior. Okay. Additionally, the Mason might say, oh, well, these oaths don't mean anything. Well, then you're taking the name of the Lord in vain because you're swearing a false oath. Additionally, you're swearing an oath where you're swearing that you will have your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, be mutilated and killed in some horrible way. So you're actually breaking three of the Ten Commandments right then and there. Plus you can't go home to your wife and tell her about it. No, it's all secret from your wife. You can't tell your wife, you can't tell your family. And plus, the other thing that, and you see, I have an excuse. I was a pagan when I went into the Mason. Uh, most Masons aren't. Most Masons are, are some kind of, you know, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, whatever. And when you begin your Masonic journey, you're made to take off all your metal, including your wedding ring, which a lot of people would have a problem with that. Additionally, they may, they're made to put on these jammies, blue jammies, and a blindfold, which leaves their one breast bare. They put a, they have a cable toe put around their neck, which is like a blue cord, and they're led to the door of the lodge, made a knock on the door of the lodge. Some guy answers from inside the lodge, who comes here? And the fellow who's your conductor answers for you and says, Mr. Bill Snevlin, who has long been in darkness and now seeks to be brought to light, 
to receive a part of the rights and benefits of this worshipful lodge erected to God and dedicated to the holy saints John as all brothers and fellows have done before him. Now what's contained in that if you're a Christian? You're saying you have long been in darkness and now seek to be brought to light. Mm -hmm. And you have Yeshua HaMoshiach, Jesus Christ, the light of the world in your heart. And yet you're in darkness. You've just denied your Lord and Savior. Now if I was a pastor or a deacon or even a Christian layperson that knew more than word one of the Bible, I would at that point say, I'm done. Give me my clothes back. Give me my jewelry back. I'm out of here. But 40,000 Southern Baptist pastors are Freemasons. Wow. And I don't mean to pick on that denomination. There's, there's other examples. I mean, most any denomination is rife with Freemasons. It's also hard to believe that so many important, powerful people have been through such strange things. Yeah. Many, I think it's 17 presidents have been Freemasons. Um, Many of our founding fathers are Freemasons. And, and they go through this partly because it's sort of expected. Uh, it's very hard to rise to political power in this country unless you are a Mason or something worse. Like our current president, who is a member of Skull and Bones, which is an even worse fraternity. Of course, it's related just to Yale, and it's a much more elite fraternity, but it's nevertheless very spooky, mm -hmm. Thank as you. you might know by the name. Right. Am I right in saying that you believe that cases of sexual abuse, uh, particularly with children, are much more likely to happen if there's a mason in the family? Yeah, not only just with children, even with, with female adult women uh, being raped and so on. But yes, we, in our experience with counseling, oh, probably crowding 2,000 clients now over the years, wow, that's a lot. That, um, that we have seen literally hundreds of cases where children allege they have been sexually molested either within Masonic lodges or else um, by Masonic grandfathers, Masonic parents, whatever. And I believe there's a, there's a real significant spiritual reason for that. Because Masonry worships Baal. See, Baal and all those pagan gods that surrounded Israel in the Old Testament, they were all phallic fertility gods. And if you worship, knowingly or unknowingly, sex, then sex is going to come back and start corroding your soul. And you're going to start having improper sexual thoughts coming to you from demon spirits. Because when you kneel at that altar, you basically place yourself under the headship of the false god Baal, even if you're a Christian. And so you've got one knee on the altar of Yahweh God and one knee on the altar of Baal. And that doesn't work. You're going to end up destroying your family, spiritually, if not every other way. I see. Yes.